Welcome to the Mycelium Network Podcast, a podcast for early stage web developers and the mentors, teachers, and communities that help them along the way. Hey, Skulk. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Um, it's kind of strange because I'm Skulk too. <laughs> so the two Skulks are chatting. How are you today? Um, all right. Uh, a bit rough, to be honest. Uh, so my 10-month-old daughter um, decided that it's um, the ideal time to start the teething process um, in the middle of us moving houses. Uh, so um, apart from me sitting between like boxes and furniture here, um, I think I have about a half an hour sleep in. Um yeah, so, <laughs> but it comes with the territory. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's true, that's true. I've not had the, the best sleep in the last while as well for different reasons. Um, we've had a bit of the COVID, our, everybody in our house. So we're kind of still recuperating and it seems like my wife got it for a second turn. Um, nice. So that's fun. But yeah, yeah, I've had it. I've had it twice as well. <laughs> so no, oh. I, I, I can sympathize. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's not. It's not something you want. That's for sure. So um, we know each other from random interactions uh, related to CodeBridge and the ZA Tech Slack um, and some open source hack days and stuff like that. Uh, and I've read up a bit about you, like on your website and um, stuff on the Open Up page. There's some things on the Open Up page that I found really interesting that I want us to dig in a little bit. But before we do that, um, if you could just give us like a whirlwind introduction to like your background, how you got to where you are today. So uh, introduction from my side. Oh, I oh, I don't know. Um, I think for me, I, I always start with the... Um, I think it's important in terms of context for me, just in terms of my own journey and so forth, is that I don't have a formal background in tech. Um, I, like many other people my age that are in tech, and, and specifically at the specific intersections where I am, didn't actually study this. Uh, we, we kind of ended up here by accident. Um, and, and I think that's also maybe one of the reasons why... Um, and I kind of also find myself in the spaces that I do because yeah. I think for me, tech and, 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 you know, things around the tech industry and so forth have always been things that I've made sense of through conversation um, instead of actually studying it. So, you know, I, I think like I've, I've been very a part of communities and meet up and so forth in the, in the early days in terms of just like actually figuring out how to build websites and whatever. And I, I think once I actually, I guess, hit a point where I could maybe call myself a professional in the space, I, I, I think I just didn't stop like <laughs> joining meetups and stuff. I just kept on going. And I, I think I'm still like a part of a lot of those communities today. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, you're behind, what, FedSA, ZA Tech, ZA Product Design, and CodeBridge. That's a lot. Uh, so, at the, <laughs> so, so, okay, cool. So, I don't know if it's going to make it any better, but at the moment, I'm not actively involved in CodeBridge. So, um, at least I have that going for me. So, it's, it's down to, like, three, <laughs> um, <laughs> at the very least. Uh, but, yeah, like, I'm obviously, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I kind of, I was very involved there for a long time. I kind of ran it as well. Um, obviously, like, low, know a lot of the people there. Um, but just because, you know, 
where life takes one and so forth. And, you know, I'm currently quite away, away in terms of distance from like actual Codebridge um, itself, the, the venue. So, um, and with the current petrol prices and stuff, um, yeah, it's it's a bit of a tough one. So I'm, I'm not actively involved there at the moment, but yeah, like obviously uh, kind of still pop in every now and then. Yeah. Would you mind explaining a little bit about what exactly Codebridge is? Phew, okay. I, I think that is something we've been trying to answer for a very long time. Um, so I, I can speak to obviously like kind of my experience when I was kind of like actively managing it and so forth, but I, I obviously don't want to speak on behalf of JD and and um, and the rest of the team who kind of are running it at the moment. Um, but I think when I was there, it, it originally started out, um, so I think, between me and JD, we, we definitely had a very big interest in, in uh, what you would, I, I guess, call civic technology. So effectively, the intersection between technology and kind of civil engagement and social good and, you know, NPOs and civil society and so forth. Because um, I think we were quite frustrated in terms of just... The, the like, I, I think the ventures that we saw where you had civil society or nonprofits or so forth, where they kind of ventured into the world of tech and you know tried exploring solutions within the world of tech. Um, like, I think in terms of just the outcomes that we just saw, um, we like we felt was like, yeah, like it was very, I, I think demoralizing um so i think we wanted to create a space where we could have those discussions in in terms of um like how can how can you actually leverage technology for social good um because everyone comes to the discussion in terms of okay we're going to use blockchain and ai to solve world hunger um but i think if you've if you've spent any time within the space like you'll you'll just know like that is not only pretty much unachievable but it's it's also like even if you were to solve um social problems or you know have some type of social good um without it actually being connected to something happening in the real world like it's it's pretty much like not of value to anyone like i, I think we had a saying where where we used to say that you know tech a lot of times tech isn't the solution uh, but it shouldn't be the problem um, and I, I think that is what we saw a lot of times is um, people started with like the tech. They took tech as a um, kind of a, a given and then they tried to work their way backwards and, and figure out how can they employ this for some type of social good uh, instead of starting at the actual need and then deciding on the tech that you employ and so forth based on that. Um, but so, yeah, so honestly, it's a very hard question to answer because I, I think it just came from a place of being dissatisfied with um, kind of how tech was being leveraged in the space of civil society and social good and so forth and just being tired of seeing like nonprofits pay like thousands of rands for like a basic WordPress website that like falls over within a month. Um, so I think it was just a general open space to explore those intersections. But I think at some point, like it started growing into like, like developing other facets as well. So, you know, um, just like general mentoring and, and you know, uh, people just connecting on tech projects and so forth. So I think um, some of that 
that specific focus, I, I think, started getting diluted at a later point, which isn't necessarily a bad thing um, because, you know, like, at the end of the day, I think the goal was to keep it an inclusive space. So um, demanding that we kind of all work towards a specific mission that we dictate, like was kind of a bit against the, the founding principles. So yeah, it's, it's to this day still a very hard question to answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I totally get yeah. that. I, <clears throat> I ran a, well, I tried to run a similar kind of program called uh, Third World Problems. Um, the idea, and, and I had the idea initially was also um, to employ tech to solve world problems. But I quickly realized, as, especially as soon as I started doing some research, I realized that, like exactly what you said, is you first need to understand the problems, and then you need to decide whether tech is the right thing to solve that problem. <clears throat> and that was actually, as is often the case, The hardest part was clearly identifying a need. That was really, that is kind of why the project fizzled out. Unfortunately, I'm trying to resurrect it again. But the reason it fizzled out is because people that would be interested in it would be interested in the code, you know, um, making an app that can do something. And that's great. And you need that enthusiasm and you need those people. But before you do that, you need to understand the concrete problem. And what the people on the ground really need, do they need technology or do they need um, bread? <laughs> you know, like it's fine to have an app, but if you're hungry, the app's not going to help you unless it's going to help you know how to grow your own food and how as a, as a community becomes um, self-sustainable and the app or the technology helps you achieve that. Great. But the technology is not the key part of that of that part. And that's why <clears throat> I think that's why that project kind of fizzled out because again, it's this, what is third world problems? <sighs> Hard to say. <laughs> it's about third world problems, but the real third world problems, not the jokingly stuff that people say like, oh, first world problems, you know, not in that joking sense of that, like the true third world problems um, that people face in the real world. Um, and I think that kind of leads to uh, a quote, I think, from you that is on the Open Up uh, website, where um, you made you made three points, and they are attempting to make sense of the bigger South African socio-economic picture, cultivating daily practices that interrogate my own position in it, and understanding how the latter should stand in relation to the former. I, I really love that, and I'd like it if you can unpack that a oh. little bit. Sure, like uh, I wrote that a long time ago. Now, <laughs> so, having someone else read it back to me, you're not going to lie. It sounds pretentious, but um, <laughs> yeah, let's 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 work with it. Uh, yeah, so I think it's also just like in terms of just due diligence and so forth. I think it's important for me to just also note that you know I'm not a full time employee of Open Up at this point anymore. Um, I do contract work. Um, I, I mostly do full-time freelance work. Um, but yeah, like I, I think that the time I spent at Open Up was a very um, formative time um, in my kind of life. And I, I think it very much formed a lot of the ideas that I have and how I kind of see myself as someone in the field um, of tech. Um, cool. So Sure. Like in in terms of that, yeah, like it's like if I were to kind of relate my like where I'm today, um, so I think like 
back when I joined the Open Up team, that was very much something that I, um, you know, like I spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, I, I, I think for me, as as mentioned, I, I don't necessarily have a tech, a formal tech background. Um, I would say that I'm self-taught. Um, but with two caveats, the, the key being that everyone kind of working at this, within, like at, in the web space in, in 2022 at my age are self-taught because you couldn't study it. You could maybe study Java um, or you could study graphic design, which included something like called web design. But that was, you kind of did a website the same way that you did a flyer or a brochure or whatever. So this whole notion of, you know, uh, like, I mean, like CSS wasn't really even a thing when I studied. So, um, yeah. Um, but I think like over time and, you know, so I've been involved, I've, I've increasingly been moving into kind of spaces. Um, I, I think you reach a point where you almost get tired of building things yourself and you're more interested in seeing what other people build and what they are doing. Um, so I'm, I'm spending more time actually working with others in terms of um, helping them figure out how to build the things they want to build. And also like people that are looking for like mentorship or whatever, or who are trying to kind of upskill or, or kind of learn these skills and so forth. And so as part of that, I was, I was very involved at, at one for one year, maybe like it was kind of just when COVID hit, was it, I think 2020, um, I was very involved in a project called Codex, um, which is based in Harrington Street in Cape Town, um, and yeah, so it's it's run by by a guy called Andre and 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 Cara, um, who's uh, like they the two of them run it, and like sure they they're just like inspirational people. I would I, I think like I would highly recommend you just speak to them as well um, on on the podcast, um, and so the goal there was to take people. Um, who didn't necessarily have the same opportunities that I or any of the people at Codex had, um, but are interested in like kind of figuring out if they can create a, a career in um, in the tech world. So effectively, you know, these would be people from like kind of the bottom of of the LSM scale. You know, so so a lot of these people didn't even have internet at home. Um, and and like and I think there's a really good like like a interesting intersection there where you know like there's a massive demand for tech skills. Um, I think if you even look at just like recruiters and even a business model like OfferZen, like that that wouldn't work in any other industry just because there's such a big demand. Um, and then like in South Africa we have this massive problem of unemployment. Um, so I think a lot of people are asking questions around can you maybe use tech to like this specific, this massive demand for tech skills to maybe make a bit of a dent in that massive. I think we're like, like youth unemployment. I think we're above fifty percent. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, so yeah, scary. Yeah, so I think, like, so I think that, like, kind of. So I joined the Codex team um, with that in mind, and 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 you know, and so we kind of definitely. So I took a, a group of girls um, and we got a lot of funding from the Google foundation and, and kind of, I taught them a lot of um, skills that like related to kind of building web apps and stuff, um, kind of doing a lot of work with web components, doing a lot of work with react. Um, I think a lot of them are employed today as react developers. Um, but I think I also like, it was also a very 
big learning experience for me because um, there's a lot of things that I took for granted you know, in terms of if I say, you know, I'm self-taught, there's a lot of privilege that, that I had in my life that made that journey very easy for me. Um, just basic things in, in terms of um, like having a degree, um, although it's not a degree in tech, um, have, like being able to have gone and studied at the university, like definitely like it teaches you some really great like um, like abstract thinking skills. Um, and I often find that with these type of programs, it's, it's very easy to teach someone like HTML, you know, you do this and this is how you make the thing blue. JavaScript, you do this and when you click the button, this happens. But I think once you get into the, the, the kind of the more complex stuff, um, you know, like in terms of things like encapsulation, um, you know, like APIs and architecture and those type of things, um, it's like there's a, there's, a, there's a level of abstract thinking that I have had the privilege of being taught in for a very long time in my life, starting, you know, from like having the opportunity to go to a pretty decent high school, um, uh, you know, by general standards, you know, it's not a public school, but uh, so, uh, but like in terms of just the general South African socioeconomic um, circumstances, like sure, it's definitely within like kind of when you're talking about like the average, it's your, I had a phenomenal education. Um, and I think so like that is how, like if I were to contextualize the points that you mentioned um, around what I said when I joined Open Up is um, like, I think that has been kind of where my journey has been going um, post Open Up. Um, I think at Open Up, I very much looked at it through the lens of how can we use tech to make things better for people that don't necessarily have the same privilege that I have. Um, and I think increasingly now, I'm kind of exploring more avenues in terms of um, like how can I maybe use like what I've been able to learn over the years and maybe help other people kind of learn those skills maybe with less of the pain that I had to <laughs> endure uh, in terms of just like not knowing anything about like even agile processes or anything, you know, missing deadlines, having to work through the night because I couldn't estimate like properly um, or just like completely just like missing like how to even architect projects or whatever. Um, so, mm, and I, I think so currently as I'm speaking at this point, I'm, I'm kind of at a place called Codespace. Um, it was originally created by uh, Emma Dex, uh, which she founded uh, Code for Cape Town, which specifically looked at empowering um, so they started out with kind of a program in Kailicha, which is one of the informal settlements in Cape Town. And they kind of also like specifically with a, with a, with a focus on some of the girls there, um, kind of teaching them like, you know, basic tech skills and tech literacies and so forth. And that kind of evolved into teaching them programming and so forth. And uh, now they're actually running a full like remote program. Um, which is based on kind of like an income share agreement. So anyone can apply. Um, you don't pay anything. To, so it's a one-year software engineering program that I'm currently running for them. Um, so anyone can apply. Um, and you just like you go through an application process because obviously you want to weed out people that aren't really 
that interested, but they just don't know what else to do. Um, and effectively, you, you get an entire year's worth of training in, in everything from, you know, like uh, HTML, uh, CSS to like full on like JavaScript, you know, like uh, like full stack JavaScript from, you know, uh, all the major frameworks to like Node, um, like even like AWS, like cloud functions, all of that stuff. Um, so really like a, almost a kind of a full on like JavaScript engineering uh, program with like HTML and CSS. And um, yeah, it's, effectively you don't pay and then um, if you do get a job after you've studied, then you retroactively pay a portion of kind of what you would have paid as fees as a part of the percentage of your salary. Um, so I think that's a really great model. Um, and, and it's one of the reasons why I've kind of involved with them, um, apart from just like really enjoying working with the team. Um, I, I definitely think specifically in a time now where they are just like around every corner there's like a boot camp trying to cash in on this trying to cash in on this you know everyone wanting to get into development and so forth um so i think having a model like that is really great um and i think it keeps everyone accountable because at the end of the day i'm not getting paid if, if my students aren't placed um because i effectively get paid a percentage of their salary um so yeah, like I, I think like that is kind of if I were to connect that statement with where I'm currently in in my life, I, I think that is kind of the area that's most applicable. Yeah, 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 that's great. Yeah, I, I know there's a school in uh, school or a, a movement in the US that has a similar um, approach to how you pay. Um, I always blank on their name for some reason, but I'll, I'll remember and put a link in the is show it notes the, is it Is it the one that specifically works with uh, refugees and, 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 and so forth? No, no, not specifically, no. Because no. um, I, like, I, I always blank on that one's name as well. I, I have an actual, um, I, know, I have a friend, Douglas, who's actually doing work for them. Um, but yeah, like it's, there's amazing stuff going on. I, I think back, uh, back in the days when I was very involved with CodeBridge, we also had, um, uh, like a couple of people down from a UK based, um, kind of, uh, I also wouldn't say bootcamp, maybe like an incubator, maybe, um, called coders and founders, uh, where they also kind of do the same type of thing, but with the goal of net, not necessarily. So I think with the code space stuff, we're specifically trying to get people into tech careers, uh, whereas um, with uh, coders and founders, and I, I think a, a similar equivalent in South Africa would be Rethink Code, uh, for whom I've also done a bit of work, where they maybe like they, they see the tech skills as a way for you to kind of create your own startup. And so you're not specifically looking to get hired in the tech field. You're actually learning tech skills with the goal of creating your own business. Um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of super exciting stuff going on there. And um, I, I, I honestly, I have to I have to kind of exercise a bit of restraint <laughs> because, like, you know, I, I just like it's, I just find it so inspiring, so exciting that like if if I don't like um, I'm just going to get involved in everything and and burn myself out. And, and like, and, and you probably know, like, also like the, uh, just the, the kind of like when you have to compare that to actual salaries of working in tech, uh, you also kind of take a bit of a hit, um, which 
to me isn't that big of a deal but now that i have a daughter <laughs> it's maybe not that easy easy anymore for me to just say no nah, it's all right like i i can live on passion alone <laughs> yeah yeah very true very true yeah. yeah that does change the game but um yeah there's a lot of people who make it work nonetheless mm. um and and but i'm exactly in the same boat i mean the reason i started the mycelium network is not necessarily to benefit me um directly it's literally I want to share my knowledge and connect people who want to get into code for whatever reason they have with people who can help them. Because again, um, I was also privileged, of course, in, in my opportunities, but some of the things I did, I, I made kind of a bold move. I mean, before I started, when I started contracting at Mozilla, um, I had a full-time you know paying job working for a contracting agency and i was placed at vodacom and i was earning a decent salary and getting medical aid and all that stuff but i wasn't happy doing the work the work to me was meaningless so that it, it was literally I, I couldn't care less about what i was building um and i, I always had the thing with mozilla and their their uh, manifesto and stuff like that and being in, uh, uh, involved in open source you know those things connected very well for me and at some point i decided you know what if I don't kind of just take the plunge, I'm probably never going to do it. And I actually resigned before actually having the job at Mozilla. And I had a family at that point. So it was, you know, it was scary. It, it worked out. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I can looking imagine, back yeah. now, I'm I'm like, wow, I took a massive chance there. But um, yeah. it, all, it, it all worked out in the end. But, but still, I mean, um, and so, but I want to make, create those opportunities for other people. Um, to also take a leap sometimes, a leap of faith, um, and not be scared to fail because, you know, um, in the world we live in today, it, it, there's so many mantras about failing, but then when it comes to social media, you, you dare not show your failures until you are very successful and then you can speak about your failures. But while you're still climbing the ladder and some of the rungs break under you, don't sit, don't tell anybody about that. Keep it quiet. And I think that we should like that should not shouldn't be normalized um doesn't matter where you are in your um your career or your path or whatever you want to call it it's always okay to fail and it's always okay to get up and, and try again it's it's also okay to try a thing and find it's not for you and move on to something else um the tech industry isn't for everybody um it's also been sold to, to people in different ways and sometimes um falsities are being you know sold to people um there's like almost utopia sold um which isn't always the case like it's sometimes it, so and even sometimes if you do stuff that you're passionate about sometimes there's just stuff that's just work and you, and you just kind of have to grind your teeth and like just get through it no 100 percent yeah i i have the same i have the same thing with the front-end development uh south africa stuff at the moment where you know so it's effectively it's a non-profit that i and like a very good friend of mine justin slack kind of founded um specifically um for um you know kind of just advocating for front-end development and you know creating resources and, and connecting practitioners in south africa uh, within the world of front-end development and um i almost want to say it's, it's kind of been too successful in so far that now uh we need to do a lot of like stuff that like actual real nonprofits need to do, like auditing and actually doing like operations, keeping track of where money is going, um, actually getting funding, 
bringing contractors on board and so forth. So I always kind of miss the days when it was just me and him um, kind of just like cowboying it. Um, and, and that's exactly the same, you know, like, so obviously the, the part that I doing the finances um, is definitely and doing the taxes and whatever and auditing um, is obviously the part I enjoy the least. But uh, at the end of the day, in terms of just value, like that is, I guess, where my where I can provide the most value. So I think it's also a part of, I think sometimes a lot of, specifically in the open source world, um, I think a lot of it is sometimes romanticized a bit. Um, and yeah, like I, 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 let me just put it this way, you know, so so you spoke about ZI Tech and um, I, I might regret mentioning this, but um, I, I guess it's such a, it's such a, it's such a, it's so thematically relevant at the moment. So last week, maybe two weeks ago, um, some of the admins on there actually got um, a, a, a letter, a personally addressed letter from someone's lawyers uh, threatening s- a civil litigation um, because we banned them from ZTech. So, um, I th- yeah, so I think that is kind of um, the, the type of stuff you sometimes need to deal with, you know, especially like within the world of open source as well, you know, um, a lot of, with CodeBridge as well, you know, like a lot of, a lot of the time it's just like actually managing humans and like personalities that don't get along and, and whatever. Um, I, I think there's a inherent messiness to being involved in these type of things. I, I think the fact that I can't even really say what CodeBridge actually was definitively like is you know like there's a messiness to that um and i i think specifically us in the tech world who are so used to like clean code and debugging things and efficiency and you know like sometimes like that messiness is is quite hard for us to stomach because we want to understand we want to know what it is we want answers um yeah and and like sometimes that messiness kind of comes give us kind of the same feeling that, for example, something like spaghetti code might give us. And some, but in real life, you kind of need that messiness. You, you can't have like everything just clean and, you know, perfectly laid out. That is very true. Um, I was just having a look here. I'm, I'm reading this uh, book about uh, program management of open source projects. And there's this quote that I that I think is like kind of um, relevant to what you just said. They say, as a program manager, you coordinate the efforts of the contributor community to meet the project's goals. The title Chief Cat Herding Officer is a joke, but an apt one. You're working with a group of large, largely of entirely composed of volunteers to produce software that other people will want to use. Individually, Contributors have their own interests and goals. When you're a successful program manager, you get these individuals aligned in the same general direction to meet overall goals of the community. That was so well put to me. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm like, so I'm reading a really great book at the moment. It's It's been recommended to me quite a bit and I finally got down to reading it. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, it's called The Goal. No, I haven't heard about it. So it's kind of very widely shared within the Agile community. Um, it's actually it's actually a novel, um, but it's a, it's a novel about a kind of a factory manager. Um, and, the, you know, kind of the factory, um, uh, like, like on the verge of getting shut down. And then, you know, like they, them trying to figure out how to save the factory and so forth. And as part of that, you know, they, they kind of like, 
yeah, I obviously, like, I don't want to, like, obviously lay out the entire plot of the book, but, you know, like, as part of that, they, 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 they come to some insights um, around just the nature of projects and, you know, like, things like dependencies, you know, and estimations and so forth. So, but I think, like, the fact that having it packaged as a novel, to me, like, is such a great, is, is actually such a great, like, way of communicating that because, um, you know, so obviously there's a lot of great books on kind of like these type of things, like Lean Startup, um, you know, all of those books. Um, but I think, like, now for me, as I'm reading this book and kind of looking at it through the lens of a novel of someone who's, you know, so it's also like kind of his marriage is like falling apart and, and whatever. And, you know, so like kind of seeing like the processes and, you know, all these things around how do you actually develop in your career? How do you actually manage a team? How do you do all these things? Um, I think sometimes we forget all of that happens as a microcosm in this larger thing that is just our lives in general um, and everyone else's lives, you know? So like in that you're dealing with like personal things and, you know, you're having, you know, like issues with family and, you know, you're getting burnt out and, you know, like I, for me, I'm, I'm very open about kind of my own struggles. I have a, I have a pretty long history with mental illness as well. And, you know, like, so I'm, I'm pretty open and I, yo, I wish I could talk about that more. Um, and, but sometimes like when I, I try to kind of always be open about it, but sometimes I feel that sometimes it like people feel sometimes it's a bit shoehorned into conversations. Um, but um, and I think I was maybe overcorrecting a bit um, in terms of like people not talking about it. Um, but but that's a, that that's tough for me. Like, um, but that's almost like an entire podcast episode on itself. <laughs> no, for sure. No, I mean, I have a I have a blog on Medium where I openly write about my struggles um, with substance abuse um, because of uh, mental health problems, anxiety, stuff like this. So I very much understand all of this. Uh, and I, the reason I, and the thing that I realized at some point is why do I want to compartmentalize my life into these buckets? Why, why do I feel the need to have that writing as open and honest as it is, be separate from the stuff I write about tech? Like, why am I, why am I, it's, it's almost as if, I'm saying that it should be normalized and people shouldn't be afraid to talk about these things, but then I compartmentalize and I kind of, you know, like, don't, don't, just don't look there. I, that's personal. Like, no, no, no. And so I'm, I'm, it's super uncomfortable. Um, but I am making a, a, a concerted effort to not do that. Um, Maybe I will have the blog separate on Medium because the audience that will benefit from that is there, so it makes sense. But I won't, I won't hide from linking to it or talking about it or mentioning it in anything, um, which previously I would probably avoid. Like I, I, for example, would have like a Kofi thing, and then I would have one that's like for my personal, and then one for my, oh, this is my professional, and I realized that. The reason I'm doing that is because of this whole thing that social media is driven, driving you towards. It's saying, no, when you are in the public eye, like whatever that is, five people looking at you or 5,000, doesn't matter. Um, your human nature kicks in in the same way. You have to put your best foot forward. 
uh, and admitting that you have struggles is not that. It's like I just said about the failure thing. You you can talk about failure once you've succeeded, but once you haven't succeeded, I'm putting it in quotes, um, you're not allowed to talk about your failures because then you just look weak. And that's nonsense. I mean, show me a person that's, that, whose life has gone just peach perfect, like from day one up to the day they are now. We all have struggles. And I think the more we talk about that, the better. And I think people will be more okay with also understanding. I, I found that personally, if you're open about these things, people are more willing to like, you know, come meet you in the middle, so to speak. Mm. They, they're mm. more understanding if you're open about mm. it. And of course, you're going yeah. to find people who, who are not like that. But I think um, for the most part, you're going to be surprised by people's reaction when you're actually honest. Mm. Yeah, and I think about that quite a lot. And I, I sometimes I wonder whether I'd, like, I'd be as open about these things um, if once again, you know, like, I, I guess, so I'm like, so I, I explicitly on my on my LinkedIn profile, you know, so I think I have a front end development, uh, product design, teaching and destigmatizing mental illness. Um, and I sometimes wonder if I would be this open about it if, um, you know, if, 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 if you know, I, I wasn't, what would be the word if, if the tech industry wasn't so didn't have as many opportunities. Um, like I'm struggling to kind of figure out how to phrase it now. Um, yeah. So if it was a bit more of a competitive, like kind of industry and, and, you know, there was a so shortage of work or, or whatever, um, specifically within the tech world, like, uh, anyone, like if you are slightly above intermediate level, you are very in demand. Um, so I'm, so I think I'm sometimes I wonder whether I would have like been as open about it if I knew that, you know, I was struggling to get work and, you know, like the, like there was very few positions out there and anything that can be used against you, like uh, would be used against you. Um, yeah, but, um, like, I don't know, like maybe let's see in 10 years, things might change. I might be like, that was a really big mistake like I, I shouldn't have been as public about it but I think for now like I've, I've been I've been managing somewhat uh well I've been managing very well while at the same time being open about kind of like all my personal struggles and so forth um and I, I actually did a very interesting like chalk so I was asked by some of the so some of the folks at Dariel um so they sometimes have speakers come and, and chat to the team and I, so I think they at some point were looking for someone to chat about mental health and I've been promising myself that I would do an actual real talk on it at some point and not just like mention it as an aside. So I, I kind of just volunteered to do it. Um, and I think specifically, like I, I actually spent a lot of time talking and reflecting on how much I've actually learned about kind of being human just from like getting deeper into the world of product design. Um, and I, I, I think I really resonate with what you're saying about, you know, failure and so forth, but I think it's, it's, it's even more, it's actually not necessarily even failure, but it, I think it's being able to understand things and like being able to articulate that failure. I think when you're in the, 
like and I think within the world of product design as well, you know, there's 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 often a saying that you it's not necessarily that you're scared that someone isn't gonna be receptive to your idea. You're scared that you're not gonna do the, your idea justice um, if you share it too early. So if you push that MVP out too early, maybe you're like, okay, cool, we should have actually just done this and it wouldn't have failed. So like it's more a thing about like missed opportunity or not being able to express the actual value of something early on. And I find it to be the same as well with kind of discussions around failure and and just general experience and so forth. And, and I think it ties into what you said that, um, you know, if you can reflect back and you can very nicely articulate and make sense of what was going on, um, you know, and frame it in terms of a bigger journey, um, that, that's a lot easier to do than when you're in the thick of it and it's confusing and it's messy and you don't know what's going on. You don't even know if it's a failure, but you're just you don't it's this blob and you don't know how to make sense of it um i think that's when it's hard um and being vulnerable at that moment i think is very hard um but i think like i've kind of learned a lot from the world of product design specifically in that regards because there's a lot of similarities there in terms of actually pushing a product out and not actually even really knowing what it is or what value it provides um, and wanting to hold back all the time and be like, okay, let's just refine it a little bit more. Let's just, it needs a bit more polish. Um, yeah. And like, I think even if you think about things like extreme programming and so forth, you know, um, so one of the core principles of extreme programming is um, which, you know, agile kind of grew out of the world of extreme programming and so forth is courage um so and yeah so I, I think there's a lot within this field and I, I think it's almost like the the tech field is almost I think pushing humans to like <laughs> I guess the edge of what they're comfortable dealing with complexity wise um and because of that it's actually bringing up a lot of stuff in you in terms of uncertainty and you know like people talk a lot about imposter syndrome um and but like specifically, it's a big thing in the tech industry. Um, and like I think sometimes we don't ask like why is it so big in the tech world? Why isn't many people talk about imposter syndrome amongst plumbers or farmers or you know nurses? Um, and I think it's just because like what we are required to do in the world of tech is so kind of straining in terms of emotionally for us and 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 like our our capabilities and and yeah like i often joke and i say that you know as you get more senior kind of the imposter syndrome kind of starts going away a bit and it's not because you get better but it's you could you just realize like how like bad everything else is out there um that you kind of realize yeah you know i didn't know much and whatever but it, no one else knows anything <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's uh, like I mean, look at look at look at kind of that incident with WhatsApp and and Facebook with the DNS. Um, like uh, I'll, like I'll always remember the date because it's the date my 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 daughter was born. Um, so and so like everyone was like so we couldn't send anyone any WhatsApp messages or anything or any photos or whatever because WhatsApp was down. Um, yeah, <laughs> what a what a what a day for WhatsApp to go down. Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, exactly. So, but like I think like that just kind of shows you as well, you know, like it's like 
I think it, like at some point you just realize just like how like with prayers and sticky tape and you know just how 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 kind of just held together ad hoc most of these things are and how people are just kind of just getting by in terms of what they actually understand and what they can actually do and how the complexity of the things we're building far outseed actually our abilities to manage it um and i think that kind of that kind of makes the some of the imposter syndrome kind of fizzle away but when you just realize everyone else really sucks at this as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no that's very true and i think um people also uh oftentimes underestimate how understanding your users can be um you know if if something doesn't quite work they'll find a way around it or they'll they'll try again there's very few instances with your everyday like website or web application where somebody is going to make a huge fuss about the fact that the button didn't quite react in the way it was or when i resized my browser window there was this moment where two things were misaligned like we sweat all that small stuff but in the real world honestly like first of all you run into it all the time because it's humans making these things and we're all fallible and then the second point that is not the end of the world it's like make your window a little bigger and then it's aligned again if it bothers you yeah <laughs> it's okay so i no 100 percent. i um so i like i'll both you and I will probably get a lot of hate mail for actually saying this, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I, I wish it wasn't the case. Honestly, I wish it wasn't the case. I, I wish like like people would be more outraged at bad experiences on the web, because um, I think like then if it hurts companies, they would actually put more resources into it. Um, and I always tell my students as well, you know, like uh, specifically my design students, um, that I wish it wasn't the case. I, I wish I could tell you that, you know, um, you need to treat your users with respect. Um, you know, like it's a very brutal relationship. If you break their trust, uh, you know, like that's very important. Like, and I believe all those things. So I wish I could say like that translates also into actually successful business. But like what I've unfortunately learned over the years is that like, yeah, like I've, I've just been in part of like projects and stuff where things were just like broken and, um, you know, and somehow like so people complained on Twitter and they kind of wrote a lot of angry stuff. And a year later, like things were just back to the way they were uh, once those issues were resolved. Um you know, like how many times has Woolworths been boycotted now? <laughs> you know, like how many of those people that boycotted with some a company like Woolworths over the years are now back at Woolworths again? Um, I wish it wasn't the case, but um, but at the very least, if anything, it it also like kind of just like eases a bit of the pressure of having to have everything be perfect. Um, and like I think. Sometimes in terms of companies, it, it maybe like makes for some gross incentives. But I think as individuals working in this space, um, it's also not the end of the world if things break. Yeah, yeah. no, for sure. And, and I mean, I'm not advocating for doing sloppy work. It's, it's, yeah, like, it, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's more a case of um, doing something right takes time. And um, when business interests clash with, time oftentimes you know 
you literally just don't have the time to do it the way you would like to do it. And so sometimes you need to make trade-offs. Um, and that is where I'm talking about like where the forgiving nature of people will come in and like kind of save you from, from those situations. Cause I mean, if, if we all had product managers or product owners who weren't driven by OKRs and deadlines and stuff like that, we would build software that is much more resilient and, um, you know, is done better, but sometimes time constraints forces you to, to take shortcuts, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, and to me, honestly, I this is such a hard thing for me, and you know, I'm I'm, I'm kind of even scared to talk about it because, uh, like, I, I know how a lot of people are going to react, but you know, uh, I can just honestly speak about kind of how things look from where I'm standing, and I think like I'm someone who's very passionate about accessibility. I've I've done several talks on accessibility. We actually at Frontend Development every year on. Um, Global Accessibility Awareness Day, we we do a specific event. Um, This year, we had a phenomenal one um, where um, Brett, um, someone I met at DevConf, who's a a blind front-end developer, actually did a talk and actually showed how he codes as a blind developer. Um, So, but, like, I... A lot of, like, I'm struggling to find some type of incentive for companies to really care about accessibility apart from just making them feel bad for not doing it. Uh, I think a lot of people would argue that there are, you know, like financial, you can frame it financially and and whatever. But honestly, I think a lot of like business thinking around like business and so forth, you know, the whole 80-20 rule, you know, 20% of your users account for like 80% of your kind of value. Um, you know, like that flies in the face of catering to a smaller percentage um, that ha- like that re- require more accessibility. And I think there's also like we sometimes get a bit stuck on. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just so scared that I'm just going to say something that I'm going to regret. Not not necessarily that I'm withholding anything, but accessibility is such a such a touchy subject, and I'm I'm scared I'm going to say something that can mis- be misconstrued or come across like in the way that I don't intend it, but yeah, it is, it is, it is tough, man. Like I, you know, like I, I often find anytime I'm involved in a project where we actually care about accessibility, it's just because I'm forcing it. It's because I'm in a position of power and I'm saying that, you know, we're going to do this as a team. You don't have a choice. Otherwise I'm not going to manage this project. Um, yeah, it it's it's you know, it's tough and yeah, like that's that's also that's a podcast on its own. No, for sure. No, and I mean it 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 boils down to the fact that you have to get people to truly care, um, and that is unf- I don't. It's better. Let me let me be totally honest. Like I mean, uh, the tooling around it has improved leaps and bounds, and the number of people that talk about it has grown exponentially which i love but in the end of the day what's the important thing is is that people who are not evangelists care about this like you understand and and i think one of the new ways that it's being framed that are that i like is this whole idea of oftentimes when you do something to benefit somebody with um some ability challenges 
benefits all your users in the end of the day. And I think the more we can pull examples out of the real world to demonstrate that, the more it becomes less of a, I'm doing it for a small percentage of my audience to a, I'm doing a thing that's going to benefit a small percentage of my audience, but A, it turns out it's also going to benefit all the other people as well. Um, and I think there's more and more of those examples being uh, highlighted. And that, that changes the conversation. Because I know for the longest time, the way to talk about it was, well, you know, you can get sued. Have you heard about Target? And I don't know if fear mongering is the way to get people to care about something. <laughs> so, I would, I would know. say, like, like so I, I would, like, you know, I'd actually say I hold the the opposite position. I like for me the only, to me the only the only real way we're gonna get any sort of traction on this is if there is like financial realities of punishment. Uh, for companies because you know like in like so sh yeah i do i do hear what you're saying um but like uh, if i just like look at like how what a tight ship a lot of companies are running you know um even just sometimes making it a, a good experience for the average user you know like the the completely able-bodied user like sometimes there's not even enough like time to actually do that because other features need to be shipped and I also have to say, you know, like we can hate on companies as much as we want, but there is a big shortage of developers. So that usually means that any team won't ever be able to get to all the work that needs to be done. So like most teams have positions that have just been open for years and they haven't folded and they're just short-staffed. Um, so I do think there is a bit of a kind of like, you know, like companies just like like having bad incentives, but I also think a lot of it is just like skills. You know, like uh, uh, yeah, like and I, I think you know, just in terms of like, and I think specifically in South Africa, I have a theory where um, in South Africa specifically, I think and I think we're trying to 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 combat a lot of that with FEDSA is that, and I'm as guilty of this as well. I do a lot of international work. Um, because, you know, South African companies can't really compete with the exchange rate, you know. If I get paid in pounds and dollars, like, you know, a South African tech company can't really compete. Um, and so that by nature means once people reach a certain level of seniority, they immediately start working with, like, you know, international teams, um, which is great. But at the end of the day, what then happen, happens is, like, the actual... Like the actual skills in the actual pool of people that are working on South African products um, is, you know, greatly diminished. Um, and you, you don't have those opportunities for mentorship in South African teams and so forth, which I'm of the opinion that the South African, you know, like just experience of using South African products on the web and so forth is, is not at the standard that it should be. Like, I think we as South Africans just assume because, you know, it's take a lot or because it's show max or whatever, we can't hold show max to the same standard as Netflix. We can't all take a lot to the same standard as Amazon or, or whatever, you know. Um, and like, I, I, I do think, unfortunately, it's it's like it's a bit self-perpetuating. And um, yeah, I would wish if, if, if South Africans were more demanding of kind of the, the, the experience that they get from actual tech products in South Africa. Yeah. Uh, Do you think um, this is a general thing in developing countries where um, <clears throat> essentially when you reach, when 
developers reach this level of seniority, <clears throat> you have this, like they say, brain drain. And so automatically you kind of have this knock-on effect happening. And then, because some people are going to get left behind in that, that story, mm. right? They're never going yeah, yeah, yeah. to reach that seniority because the people yeah. that can help them get there leave. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, and it's interesting. So, uh, like, I've actually, actually, actually spoken to Philip from Office Zen, uh, one of the co-founders of Office Zen, about this quite a lot. Because what they're seeing is they're seeing a lot of, uh, not only South Africans actually, you know, working for European companies and so forth post-COVID, you know, like, like as the whole world went more remote. Um, they're also seeing a lot of actual developers from other countries come and work in South Africa just because it's a, it's a nice climate. The cost of living is, you know, like pretty inexpensive and so forth. And they work with their kind of teams in Silicon Valley or whatever, but they're based in Cape Town. And so, like, I think what I, where I stand on that and what, I, some, what I've mentioned to Philip as well is that I think there's a danger there in not seeing that as a brain drain just because people are still physically here. But what happens is, you know, once again, the actual teams in South Africa, the, the juniors in South Africa and, you know, those like working adjacent to developers, uh, you know, maybe in product design or in tech support or whatever, like they are getting deprived of a lot of like seniority and opportunities for mentoring and, you know, and, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, it's tricky. It's tricky. I, I, I don't know. But once again, I'm as guilty of this as anyone else. Um, I have to also say that, you know, unfortunately also I find that, you know, South African tech companies don't treat the employees that well. Unfortunately, yeah, that's and been my I, experience I, as well. Yeah. I think specifically as a front-end developer, I often feel that South African companies tend to see front-end development as an afterthought. So, yeah, like, it's not a also, real job. yeah, and it's like you get the designs from the designer, and you get the API, not even the API. Let's say you're doing PHP templating or whatever. You know, you just write the make the CSS fit the design like there's no mention of like design systems or any of that stuff you know um so like so now like you're given you're given the opportunity to um be less respected and earn less money just out of principle you know <laughs> so i think at some at some point yeah so at some point like even i'm like you know so i try and so there, there's a company called palmetrics that i um do like a big about 50 percent of, of my work um is for them um so they're kind of like a seller dashboard for um s sellers third-party sellers on take a lot um yeah um so um yeah so that is the big one of the big south african teams that i work with and it's just because also i i share a lot of the um like there's a lot of overlap in terms of just like culture and whatever. So I really enjoy working with the team there. Um, but like most of my other works international, unfortunately. So I think this ties in nicely with how we've talked about all this stuff and like just the thematic thing you said now. So how, as a teacher, because I know that's a large part of, of what you do, why do you see the role of open source? How does, what role does it play in learning and in teaching? Hmm. Sure. Um, yes. Okay. That that sure. That's a tough one. Um, 
I can say for one that it isn't playing nearly as big as a role as it should. Um, I I still see so many teams that are effectively trying to create their own worst version of MDN. Um, I've just encountered so many, like, because I've, you know, I've taught at a lot of places. I've kind of been involved in a lot of programs and so forth. And there's an obsession with creating content. And I think in terms of education, we are still... In, like we're kind of in almost like we're kind of a, like so there's a really great book um, by the name of Info We Trust um, and it talks about you know like we like the information age isn't like on the horizon anymore we're like we're like in the shoulder shoulder depth in it we're like drowning in information and you know like like and I think indicative of that is just like the fact that you know most of the big tech companies and then the most profitable companies is, is companies that actually help navigate that just sea of information, whether it be Google or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, or even Wikipedia. So, and, but I do think a lot of educational programs and a lot of people involved in those programs are still in a mind like like in a in a in a information scarcity mindset where they think the value that they're providing is giving students content giving like creating reading material creating instructional videos and things for you for for and i think one thing that we've started exploring at codespace is um I'm obviously going to speak a lot about Codespace because that is like where I spend most of my teaching time at the moment. We've started exploring not creating any new content. So playing the role of curating content. So sending people to MDN, giving them a list of YouTube videos to watch and so forth. And thinking about the value we provide a bit differently. Um, I think... I draw a lot of inspiration from um, the Odin Project. You're probably familiar with the Odin Project. Yeah, so they also tend to take a more of a curation role than an actual creating content role. And yeah, like, does the world really need one more YouTube video on Flexbox? Um, <laughs> probably not. Probably not. <laughs> and probably not with the budget that I have. You know, like, I'll just leave it to actual, like, high producing streamers to do like a really engaging video on how Flexbox works. So what is the value that I provide then? And and I always start I always start by asking my students why are you here instead of just doing a 200 rand Udemy course? Um and like they never even actually think about that. But even worse, like why are you here when you could just be doing free code camp? Um which most of the time has even better outcomes than a lot of these boot camps. So I think what we've been trying to do is integrate a lot more of those things. So instead, like actually having students do free code camp in addition to what we provide. So instead of seeing something like free code camp or Udemy or whatever as a competitor to the training that we provide, 
seeing how we can maybe play a more curation role in terms of guiding people in terms of, okay, if I want to go into this, what are things worth exploring? Um, if I want to build this type of app, what are the stuff I should be looking at? What are the, because there's also a lot of like misinformation out there. Um, like what are the, the things, you know, uh, should I be using MDN or should I be using W3 schools? You know, um, most, I've, I've, sure, I've seen so many programs where they actually use W3 schools as an actual reference. I'm like, yeah, um, sure, okay. I shouldn't probably have said that part aloud, but yeah, like, and like it's pretty well known that I'm not a big fan of W3 schools. Um, but yeah, like, so I, I think to answer your question, what role should open source be playing? Sure, I, I don't know, a role. At this point, I don't. I don't think it's playing that much of a role at the moment. Um, we we just have too many people creating content, too many people building LMSs. Um, when something like GitHub actually has a really solid like educational platform uh, that you can use, yeah, and, and and you can set it up so it runs automated tests and whatever. Do we really need to be building another Laravel? powered like LMS for our specific bootcamp or our specific, yeah. So I think like there's a bit of a mindset change that needs to happen there in, in terms of relying more on open source things, relying more on what's out there. And I, I think there's a bit of fear there in insofar that people are scared that that's going to make them redundant. Um, in, but I, yeah, but I, but I also think, you know, I don't know, it's maybe easy for me to say, but if it makes you redundant, then so be it, you know, um, like, would you rather, would you rather try and stay relevant at the expense of students at the expense of their, so I, I told my wife yesterday, sorry, like I just have so many things I can say on this topic. I told my wife yesterday. So, like at CodeSpace, we for next year we have an intake of 150 students, um, and like, sure, like that's the biggest intake we've had ever. And um, yeah, like, and I, like, it's it's so scary. It's sure, it's like you literally have the ability to mess up 150 people's possible career prospects. Um, shoo, like, but yeah, like that, that's a conversation for another day. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I, I just find that, I, I just find that there's a lot of misidentification of the real value that education provides in the information age. Um, I think a lot of, especially a lot of like, boot camps and stuff try and copy what universities are doing because I think it they're under the impression they it's more legit universities are quote-unquote better than just like some random but I don't know like as someone who's done a lot of work for universities like shoo, like like the the university model is not what you want to be copying <laughs> and and saying this as someone who has a has a master's degree himself and spent seven years studying um like I honestly think like the university model is very flawed in this day and age 
Um, and I think we need to do some fundamental rethinking in terms of how we train people. Um, a good friend of mine, um, Candice, um, she works for a company called Fourth Rev, uh, so Fourth Industrial Revolution. Uh, Revolution, and and so they are exploring a lot of these things in, in terms of how do you do education in a world like the one we're in today. And and honestly, I don't I don't necessarily have any good suggestions. I I think I I can maybe just say like there's a lot of stuff we're doing really badly, um, and we should maybe just address them before we actually see how we can improve, um. Just give a give an average experience, like uh, before we even aim for great. Um, yeah, I'd be curious. Like, like I'd be curious. Just you know, like uh, most people that I speak to that have some type of training in coding or whatever, like is pretty dissatisfied with kind of their bootcamp experience, um, and a lot of them like in spite of kind of like the course that they did or the degree that they got or whatever um, actually succeed. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Like it kind of feels like we don't necessarily have to win at this game. Like at this point, we just need to stop scoring like own goals mm, at the very least. That's you know? a good one. <laughs> at the very least, just like stop sabotaging ourselves. Let's just like at least stop the, stop the bad stuff and then we can focus on making it better. Yeah, no, um, I totally agree. And I think the curation thing you were talking about, I think that is the missing link at the moment. Everybody that I speak to that's, that's new and starting to learn, it's not that, they, that there isn't, content out there there's actually too much um mm, and so exactly. finding finding a path through all of that is what they find much much more um challenging than finding content they don't know what to trust they don't know if this is this person is is good or not uh, there's different modalities different ways people learn and so i think being in the curation space and doing a really good job at that is I think much more important right now than just like you say creating another version of MDN or Free Code Camp or whatever the case may be. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's effectively what you're doing here. Yes. So instead of doing like Welcome to the Skulk Netling stream, and I'm going to be teaching you about what you need to know as a developer, you're kind of relying on what people are doing out there and what's what people already explored and surfacing that exactly uh, instead of trying to create stuff yeah like so at the very least you have that going for you <laughs> well that's good to hear that's good to hear because that was the intent yeah. Scott, this from is... one skull to another <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so this was really great i think this is a wonderful conversation it was like far-reaching and it delved into all kinds of things which i think was really really interesting and people are going to enjoy listening to it and so in closing um Tim Ferriss has this thing at the end of each show that he always asks people, if you if you had a billboard in a really, really busy street and you could put a phrase on there for everybody to <sighs> see, what would that be? So my question is similar in nature, but then the message would be, what would that message be for people that's getting into tech? Phew. Okay. Like that would very much depend on what time of day you ask me, uh, or even like what day of the week you ask me. So I would probably just default to like whatever I tell my students the most. And, and I think what I always come back to is that 
it doesn't need to suck this much. Like, I think a lot of them have an expectation that, you know, they're going to have to work through the night. They're going to have to, like, uh, put in all these hours. They're going to have to, like, people are going to have to treat them like crap. Um, and, like, honestly, I, like, I always tell my students, there are teams out there. There are people out there that are like, I don't want any part of that. Like, if you come and work for us, if you're part of our team, we don't want that. We're going we're gonna, to like, actively push you to take care of yourself. And I find that, you know, with my students, a lot of times there's an expectation that they need to almost like bow down to this hustle culture. And they can't be like, I actually want to take care of myself. I actually want to be in a, in a healthy mental state. I don't want to sacrifice my mental health. And like, yeah, and, and, and to me, it's just like I always tell them, like the tech field is just so wide and, and there's just so many people doing so many different things that you don't need to settle for something that you feel is not aligned with your values. Um, and I, I, I think that is one of, the, one of the benefits that we have within the tech field is just because at the moment there's such a big demand. Um, so you should be able to find something that resonates with you. Um, don't just like, especially if you're a junior, a junior and you're looking for your first job, don't just settle for the first thing that comes along. Um, you like, there is a lot of teams that treat people with respect that value you as a human. Um, and there's a lot of companies that are forced to do this just because they need developers so badly even if they would have treated you like garbage. Um, so I think that's what I always tell my students is that um, there's a lot more room out there for you to have a better experience than you maybe think there is. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Mm. Thanks so much, Scott. Mm. This was wonderful, as I said. Um, thank you for cool. spending your Friday afternoon with me. It was yeah. really great. Yeah, now it's back to changing nappies and um, <laughs> the dad stuff. <laughs> back to the real world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. Thanks so much. This was really great. Yeah, um, thanks, Scott. I hope we can chat again soon. Oh, for sure. Cool. Cheers, man. Thank you for listening to the Mycelium Network Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have something to add? Continue the conversation on GitHub and join the community on Slack. Until the next one, keep making the web awesome.